Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness. I am your host, Gertie Schoen. Here with us today is Kathleen Dowling Singh, who wrote a fascinating book about death and dying, which is largely based on her own work with the dying. It is called The Grace in Dying, A Message of Hope, Comfort and Spiritual Transformation. Welcome to our show, Kathleen. Well, thank you for inviting me, Gertie. You're very welcome. Um, so I read through your book, and uh, uh, much of the theoretical basis of your book goes back to Ken Wilber's transpersonal philosophy. Is that right? That's correct. It's 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 grounded in the transpersonal perspective, but I also honored the work of um, Michael Washburn in in looking at our transpersonal development. Mm-hmm. What drew you to to this kind of spiritual philosophy? I beg your pardon? What drew you to this spiritual philosophy? Oh, I think I've always been drawn to depth. I I had many beautiful, I suppose you could call them mystical or spiritual experiences when I was a little girl. And I had a really deep interest in um, understanding who we are and what makes us tick. Uh, I started reading young at 11, so it's been a lifelong interest for me. Mm -hmm. Would you be be comfortable sharing some of those spiritual or mystical experiences with us? Well, sure, although I think anything that's that's genu- genuinely an experience of union or um, a sense of non-duality is, is very hard uh, to put into words because it's be- the experience itself is, is beyond the conceptual mind and it's, be- it's beyond um, 
anything that words can express. It was just an experience over and over um, as a little one of uh, joy and awe and wonder and gratitude. Mm -hmm. So that was the foundation of your spiritual interest. Um, what, what led you to wanting to work with the dying? Well, I think in a nutshell, in my mind, having always been drawn to death with, with a P, um, I figured that the end of life, if, if nowhere else, would um, force us with its urgency to look more deeply than we've ever looked before. And how did you initially think about uh, working at a hospice or working at a hospital? Uh, well, I worked at a hospice. At first, um, you know, at first it was a very uh, difficult experience. It's just the way a sailor has to get sea legs. I had to work through some of my own um, screamishness. There, there's the ravages of disease are pretty impossible to um, imagine uh, if you've never seen them before. And I had to work through what remained in myself, that which was my fear, uh, that caused me to back away. So I would say the first uh, couple of months were um, deep experiences of looking inside at, at my own fear and, and healing some of that fearfulness in me. And then healed. Then I could simply begin to just be with people. So you stuck that through those months of, of comfort, discomfort and unease in yourself. Yes, I did. Um, yes, I did. I remember meeting one a person at a farm market one morning, and uh, just in conversation, she asked me what I did. And this was a period when I was still struggling with it. And she goes, oh, how wonderful. Don't ever leave. Someone has to do it. And I remember thinking, oh, lady, <laughs> you don't know. It, it, it's a difficult thing to um, open ourselves up to be present with the anguish of another person. Mm -hmm. You're also a psychotherapist, right? Yes, for many years. Mm, how did that happen? And a spiritual practitioner for many years. Tell us a little more about that. Um, well, I had a meditation practice for, for decades. Um, a meditation practice? Yes. Oh, yes, okay. And um, it induced in me that willingness to face what frightened me that I just described. Um, it, it, it opened me to be able to want to see what my, my own obstructions were. And I think it also enabled me to have the ability to just have, once having healed some of the visual, the physical visuals that frightened me, um, to just simply 
be with people uh, without an agenda of my own. That was the work of, of healing my fear, was getting rid of any kind of personal agenda that I brought into being uh, with another person who was, who was suffering so. So getting rid of a personal agenda was the biggest piece of that initially. Yes, and it, you know, um, our, our egos are are pretty embedded. That's always the work. I, I would say that working with the dying is one of the single most powerful experiences um, we can have as a human being, because inevitably, um, what is in us that that blocks our experience of connection with another person which is the same thing that blocks our experience of connection with the sacred, it's always arising. It's always being unveiled. Would you say that your work with the dying was a natural progression of your work in psychotherapy? Yes, I would. Um, now, I, I, I continue to work as a, as a therapist, and I, I work um, only really with people who've, who've done a, a good measure of healing work and who want to um, grow transpersonally, who want, who want to grow into um, some stability of awareness beyond just self. So what would you say was the most important piece you you are taking or you took away from your work with the dying? I think there's probably I would have to say several several things. One was the um clear observation over and over and over that in the process of dying um each of our awarenesses moves moves beyond clinging to just a, a separate self. That people move into spiritual dimensions as they die. Um, I saw it hundreds of times and I, I think uh, my observation was that the, the psychological emotional anguish that people went through before death uh, needed to be handled as as skillfully as um, palliative care handles physical symptoms. And I also saw that there were certain um, conditions that arose uh, at the end of life for each person. And when we look at those special conditions that arose, those conditions seem to create a, a crucible for um, psycho-spiritual transformation. And we can import those, those special conditions into our lives and uh, experience the grace that dying people experience at the end of our lives. That's available to us in the midst of our lives. That's what the whole um, spiritual journey is about. What, what, uh, what do you mean when you say special conditions? Well, 
there are a number of things that that happen as as we die. If if you think about it, um, one of the very first things that happens is um, the minds play with a terminal prognosis. Like we we all can say we can intellectually um, grasp that we're mortal beings that that we have a shelf life but to really have to face that this is my time my my breaths are are numbered brings that awareness of of our own fleeting existence um out of just intellectualization, it, it brings it to something that that's known in the heart, and um, so much that's inessential gets cleared out of the way simply because choicelessly we're forced to confront our mortality. Uh, you can that certainly is what is one of the um most significant of the of the special conditions is is that there there's no escape there's no exit at this point there's no one can save me um and and this is about to happen and there's immense anguish as a person goes through uh coming to some peace, a peace that's beyond acceptance, really, um, coming to some peace with that. And and you can think, I don't, I don't know, we've all known people at this point in our lives who have died. One of the things that a terminal illness does is it, it necessitates our, our withdrawal from uh, so much that we've identified with our activities in the world our our accomplishments our uh, routines the the ways that we're used to functioning there, there's a break from our, our habitual lives a radical break and people begin to uh, start looking at the question who am I beyond my accomplishments and who am I beyond my activities and the persona that I presented to the world and the functions that I that I've performed in the world? Who am I beyond that? It's deep deep questioning. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you're saying um that is something that automatically occurs when confronted with a terminal illness. But uh, you also said that is something one can confront just as a part of the spiritual path. Um, how, how how do you get to this place even when you're not forced, so to speak, uh, by terminal illness? Well, by having a powerful intention to see to see what's really so and what's going on in uh, these lives of ours as we conceive of them. I I love playing with the notion, you know, Buddha uh, spoke of the source of all of our suffering as ignorance. And I love playing with the notion um, that ignorance is, is simply to ignore what's so, 
to um, continue to exist in the life of of our conceptions and our unexamined beliefs and in our assumptions without really looking at what's so. And I I think it's that wish to to see clearly that um, that leads us to pursue a spiritual path. I think the wish comes from our heart. I think all of us have a sense um, here and there, at the least, that there's so much more to this life than the routines we've uh, trapped ourselves in. So it's a longing. It's an intention. And um Actually, I have a book coming out in August called The Grace and Aging, and what it looks at is how to incorporate all of the special conditions that occur in the dying process, how to incorporate them in the midst of our lives um, to hasten our deepening and to, and to facilitate our awakening. Right, and I think that's the struggle that if if you're not forced from the outside or if you don't make that effort to make aging or dying conscious, then it's so easy to just stay in la-la land and to stay caught up in our routines and all the achievements we have yet to to um, to make throughout our lifetime. Um, Absolutely, and the decades go by. The, the decades go by, and that I think that as we age, there naturally begins to come in us a, a sense that is this really what I want to call the the sum total of my human existence? Because as I think most young children have a sense that, that there's more. I think that throughout the decades of our lives, periodically, there's that that heart longing arises, um, that sense of not being ever able to find that that total um, enduring satisfaction that that we seek in, in the rat races we create. That there has to be something more valid, a more um, reliable, uh, a more reliable source of contentment. So what I'm hearing is that there is a certain... Um, dichotomy between um, that withdrawal from the world and going deeper into uh, a spiritual world. Um, But the Buddha, for example, also taught to look for the spiritual in everyday life, in engagement with the world. Is that a contradiction? No, not really. You, you know, in the spiritual path, it's interesting because there's so many of the instructions from any of the wisdom lineages that seem paradoxical. And I, I wish I remembered who said it because I think it's a wonderful quote. Um, the, the quote is, paradox is the way the truth appears to a conceptual mind. 
our conceptual minds are incapable of um of knowing what's really so. And so in your example um to to work with that for a moment we need to recognize that there's stages on the spiritual path. And initially, certainly, and throughout our spiritual journey, um, withdrawal, seclusion, solitude, silence, all of those things further are deepening. But the reason we're deepening as we discover, as we deepen, is to share uh, what what arises in us in our depths. What arises in us is wisdom and compassion and love. And as we go deeper, um, we go into the generosity, you could say, the boundless generosity of our own hearts. And that's where every spiritual gift that we receive um we wish for all others. So yes, there's a there's a cyclical nature to it of withdrawal and engagement. But each each is necessary. It's almost like you could say, in the in the withdrawal, you could compare that to time uh, on the meditation cushion or the meditation armchair, wherever you meditate. We do that to to plumb our depths and to quiet and to know spaces um, beyond self and to access our own most beautiful qualities. And then off the cushion, we're integrating, um, we're trying to actualize the realizations that we've had on the cushion. And one of the most beautiful ways to actualize them is to is to share them, not necessarily in words, but by sharing the quality of our being, our capacity to be present with each other, respectfully, lovingly, warmly, um, compassionately present. Mm-hmm. One of the things you say in your book is that Often, uh, before there is uh, a, f- a, draw- a feeling drawn to a spiritual path, there is restlessness and malaise and a sense of depression. Um, can you say more about that? I think most people are certain. I'm just talking about the United States. That's what I'm familiar with. I think um, most people in our country who become spiritual practitioners uh most are led to it because of some sorrow, some pain, some sense of incompletion, um, some sense of insufficiency. Um, we're led by our seeking initially. <laughs> Further down the spiritual path, we begin to recognize that that our, our seeking <laughs> is actually an obstruction um, because really the awakened state is available in every moment. But there's a progression. We need to do um, the spiritual work of development, you could say, before we can discover what's essential and noble uh, and unitive in us. 
So you're saying the seeking is an obstruction in itself. At one point, it begins, again, here's another one of those paradoxes. It, 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 it uh, causes us to, to begin uh, searching and to find a path that resonates with us and to begin practicing, and it adds to our earnestness as we're at the beginning of a practice. But then further along in the practice, we see that... Um, that what it is that's seeking really is the ego. And um, the ego is never going to um, access beyond self. Ego is kind of a closed system. It's a, it's a closed conceptual uh, paradigm. But, but we need to work with the self before we can move beyond it. There's a natural progression in the in the a journey of spiritual ripening. Um, how do you? I mean, I think that fits nicely into what you say. Uh, often we begin with psychotherapy by exploring the mind and learning more about ourselves. Uh, but when become? How do you separate between therapy and the spiritual path? Does there come a time when, when that form of self? exploration turns into more of a spiritual path? I think if if we're if if we have some wisdom, yes, or if we're working with someone who has some wisdom, yes. Um do I conceive of the work as psycho spiritual. Any part of our ego that needs to be healed, any any unhealed wound is always gonna call us back for healing. And that's almost the first step. That's why psychotherapy can be so useful, especially with a with a skilled practitioner, someone who has his or her own wisdom practice ongoing. To to do the healing creates a solid enough uh, ego foundation to move beyond ego. If we don't heal, we keep that. We'll just be pulled back over and over and over by by these unmet needs and these unhealed wounds. But at a certain point, yes, your insight is is spot on. At a certain point, it just mires us more deeply in self to to stay with our stories. At at a certain point, it becomes appropriate to to let go of the stories, um, to let go of the, the narratives that that substantiate the, the sense of, an, of a separate self. Um, so that fits nicely into when you say that suffering is a precursor to grace, that first you have to go through the stages of depression and suffering. And why is that so necessary? Well, I don't know that we necessarily have to go through suffering the way that the suffering is is typically conceived of, but we certainly have our share of um, not being content, of being restless, of um, 
of wanting and grasping and feeling sorrow at parting and wishing for more. Um, and, and that suffering also, the, the Buddhist word is um, dukkha. And it just, it, it conveys a, a lack of contentment and a lack of ease. And we it's a necessary part of our um, psyche to go through because those are the places that need healing. Those are where the wounds are. That's what we keep. That's what we keep ignoring. That's what keeps us in ignorance. And to look clearly, to wish to see clearly, is to see all of us, all of ourselves, including the parts that we've tried to, um, you know, keep a tight lid on or confined to a, a dark corner of our unconscious. It's making the unconscious conscious. The the path of spiritual ripening. And you can't skip that place of dealing with your wounds. <laughs> no, you really, really can't. And it's such a common attempt that um, th there's a name for it. It's, it's called spiritual sidestepping, and you can't do it. The wounds will, will call us back. They'll call us back. We can't move uh beyond self and until the the wounds of the self as as we conceive of it are, are healed does that go equivalent to the desire for i don't know distraction or entertainment like you have to heal the wounds and at the same time you have to wear out the desire for more yes well, yes that's one way to it, if I understand you correctly, I mean, if we hold the intention that we actualize um, our profound potential um, as human beings, if we hold that intention uh, and are willing to continue to look at what's actually arising in each moment, the strength of our habituated patterns of distraction or neediness, that kind of thing, they do begin to abate. So, so tell us what are when you talk about spiritual sidestepping, what 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 are the dangers of that? Well, the dangers of it are that we get stuck and we don't progress. It's a, it's a fairly simple thing um, with a little bit of practice to enter beautiful states of mind that are that are blissful or light filled or you know um, replete with lovely visions and. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a dead end, but it, it beckons to a lot of people because the ego loves to grasp on to um, what it views as pleasurable. We desire uh, beings. Say that again. We desire beings. We 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 are beings who cling to our desires. Right. Pleasure-seeking beings, you could say. Mm -hmm. 
and those some of those blissful states of of meditation where we can get caught um that they are they're they're simply a dead end we won't grow beyond them and and they're they're condition states they they depend upon um certain conditions to arise and in that sense they're not reliable refuges either mm-hmm. one of the um things you explain in your book is that there are four separations that we carry around. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that thought is articulated by Ken Wilber, but it's in um, a lot of teachings from various wisdom traditions that in the creation of a sense of self, we um, create four boundaries, imaginary boundaries that exist, only exist in our conceptual mind. And you can think of the development of a child that in, in its first moments of of being frightened or thwarted or disappointed or or uh, saddened, for example, it what what had seemed as a unit of experience of the child with the mother becomes um, an acute sense of. Uh, a separation between myself and the other. So that's the, that's the first boundary that's created between self and other. And with, with that one becomes an awareness of um, of death, of 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 um, of threat, because to, to be separate is, and to be aware of our separateness is, is to live in a, a not particularly secure state of mind. Everything's a threat. And um, it's the cause of all of our most common neuroses. And it's the cause of our grasping, you could say as well, because uh, we feel less threatened in what we consider to be pleasurable circumstances. And the, the third, um, the third boundary or duality that's created is the distinction that the the conceptual ego makes between um, mind and body. The body begins to um, appear as less reliable, less under our control, and we work within the illusion that uh, we can control the experience of our lives more um, more perfectly in our conceptual minds. And uh, we all know people like that who, you know, the experience of life is is conceptual. There's a phrase, a talking head, where you, you, the person's cut off from um, his emotionality and cut off from, from body awareness and playfulness and spontaneity. And the... Uh, the last one is between um, the, its Jungian terms, persona, the, the aspects of our psyche that we're uh, 
willing to own that we wish to portray the others and and that we hold as our our own cherished self image and then the shadow parts of ourselves and those are the parts that often are are filled with shame that we're afraid to share our vulnerability with other people. And interestingly, in our shadow parts, often are all of our most beautiful qualities, uh, which we feel too unworthy to own. What do you mean by that? Can you give us an example? Well, I think especially in the United States, we live in a culture... If you think about it, where all of the all of the advertising um, and just about everything is advertising that is that's beamed at us is beamed at a sense that we all carry around of I'm, I'm not enough, um, I'm not adequate or on second class we all have our our own different versions of it as as we um, kind of silently word our sentences in our mind but the all all of the media uh, capitalizes on this this sense of um I'm not enough and um I forget where we were going with the conversation. What was your question? Uh, you were talking about the shadow and that the shadow contains so much positive things, really. Oh, right. That sense of self becomes a huge part of our of our conceptions of who we are. Um, and we deeply believe those conceptions. And for so many people that I've worked with and seen in my life, to to know and own and trust in our own goodness is um at first experience like an unimaginable leap of faith instead of just to gratefully own that there is in each of our hearts <laughs> seeds of every beautiful quality i I think we're um we we live in such confusion about about who we are and how we exist and i i think it that's in one of the ways the power of the transformative experience of the dying process is that finally we get a, a glimpse of um the wonder of, of of beyond self and it's sad that for so many people it's it's you know at 1159 in the in the day of their life so talk more about that uh, one of the terms you use a lot in your book <clears throat> is the ground of being what what does that mean well Oh, it has a thousand names. Um, some people call it God. Um, in Buddhism, it's the the Dharmakaya, um, the Godhead. Uh, it's a sacred. It's it's sacred, formless awareness. You could call it love. But that's where those four dualisms. Um, create so much suffering in our lives because with that very first duality of self and other uh, we 
live our lives convinced that we're separate from the ground of being. When in point of fact, it's impossible. And and that that's really, in a nutshell, the nature of the spiritual path is, is to um, move from the, the ignorance our minds have created to the knowing uh, that we already are absolutely in the divine flow in every moment. So, so what's the process? Uh, I mean, so often we we learn that we should just tell ourselves positive affirmations and that we are all divine creatures and all that, uh, but it's not so simple. Um, no, I, I don't have a great deal of faith in affirmations, really, because if you think about it, if we exist in our conceptual mind, which most of us do, before we begin a process of of um, spiritual awakening, every every thought in our mind has has no not no thought has has more weight than another, and so we can sit and cross our fingers and repeat affirmations as as long as we want, but it's really not going to affect any um, meaningful transformation. It might loosen up some of our beliefs a little bit, but the, any kind of real shift of really um, transformative spiritual experience comes about by moving our awareness beyond conceptual mind, by allowing conceptual mind to quiet. And that's the necessity for a, a, a committed formal practice. So moving beyond conceptual mind, is that what spiritual practice is? You could say that. I mean, you you could say that. That that's what a formal practice allows us to do is to access depths of being that are beyond our beliefs and uh, that are beyond the the assumptions of of the paradigm that we ordinarily live in. Um, it allows us to access um, a clarity. And the knowingness that the that's beyond the grasp of the conceptual mind, and it shifts it shifts the center of our being, and it shifts our view and our perspective on what's actually happening. There, there's a shift over time, and we come to view things differently. But for boundaries that we talked about, for example, the, the solidity of them begins to dissipate, and there is a sense of living more in interconnectedness. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it interbeing. With with less self obscure, obscuring what's actually happening. Interbeing. What what's an interbeing? An experience. Um, <laughs> an experience of existing without 
the sense of self as a constant point of reference. Mm-hmm. So how does dying accelerate that process? What is the psycho-spiritual process in dying that leads to this place? Well, there's a dismantling of all of the causes and conditions that upheld the sense of self. Certainly, um, any aspect of the sense of self that believed itself to be in control is... um, quickly refuted, uh, the decline and the weakness and the um, dissipation of strength uh, take away some of the props that sustained the sense of self. And there is a confrontation, deep inner, inner, inner confrontation with a power beyond self that initially I think for most people who do not have a spiritual practice it's very frightening because it it's the end of me as, as I conceive of me and initially it begins with a lot of fear and a lot of anguish and as the self begins to dissolve within that fear and and anguish there is a beautiful transformational point of surrender where I think that the inner inner um, thought process if it were to be, be put into words was that this that a moment ago I was so terrified of is actually what I've always been longing for. It's it's a sense of wholeness and completeness far, far beyond self. And there is a melting and the dissipation of ego in in that moment of surrender. And and that really um is the moment that heralds the the grace in dying. Mm-hmm. So when when that is taken away from someone, uh, if there isn't a, a terminal illness that leads uh, up to this point, but when someone dies very quickly, um, is is that process taken away from them? I don't believe so, Gertie. I think that um, the process can unfold over weeks or days or hours or minutes, even in the last moment before the next breath is not taken. Without ego, what remains is is the sacred. And I think whether we're dying slowly from cancer or quickly from a bullet, the the process is the same. I was able to write about it because the people that I worked with were typically dying of a terminal illness. And so the, the, if you could phrase it this way, the rate of transformation was a rate that enabled observation. That's a beautiful final word um, about that topic. So before we go, um, tell us a little bit about your next project so we know what, what what's coming out next, the next book project. 
Well, the Graceman Aging will be coming out uh, on August 5th. It's a wonderful book, and it looks about it looks at how to take what we've learned from the transformative conditions of the dying process and incorporate them into our lives, especially those of us in our in our last decades. And the next project I'm working on is um, looking at our lives through the lens of spiritual biography and to see um, where, even though we may not have labeled it as such, each of us is engaged in a, in a spiritual journey and looking at ways to um, nurture and facilitate our own ripening. So you're already working on the next book? I am. Wow, you're very productive. When is that planned to to come out? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> the bo books have their own timing. <laughs> it, that too is a work of spiritual uh, ripening, isn't it? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you so much for all the time you've given us. We so appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me, Gertie. It was good to talk with you. To you too. And I hope that when uh, your, your book about aging will come out, we'll be able to talk to you then. Great. I'd love to. Bye-bye now. You too. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.